Hello, and welcome to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, not Christine today. Today, we have a guest host, Juliana. And um, Juliana has actually recently joined the Foss and Crafts team. We, as of today, uh, we have hired her to start editing a podcast, the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... When we went to look at the audio file for the episode we thought we had ready for her to edit, we discovered that it was compromised. So we are re-recording. Yeah, and what are we re-recording about? So today we are doing a podcast episode of a talk that I gave as a conference presentation. So this is a textile historian's survival guide to suddenly finding herself in need of making all of her own clothing. Or not all of her own clothing, but quite a lot of her own clothing. Yeah. So why do you have to make your own clothing? So, the very short answer that we will go into more detail of is that I... I'm allergic to all synthetic fibers, which in the modern textile industry is almost impossible to find an entire wardrobe's worth of clothes that don't use synthetic fabrics or synthetic thread to sew them together or elastic to keep them, you know, stretchy. So a lot of things I ended up having to make myself. Yeah. And you've mentioned being a a textile historian, so how does that play into this? Why is it useful that you have this knowledge of historical methods? Yeah, so if you go through the archives of this podcast, you'll find two episodes about my dissertation. And my dissertation is on women and textile production in the Roman Empire. So for years and years and years, I studied the social connection between women and textile production and studied things like the production bottleneck of spinning versus weaving wool and the actual time investment in the domestic labor of keeping a family clothed in a pre-industrial society where basically the women of the family were making, repairing, and mending, and laundering all of the clothes for a family. Mm -hmm. So I had this kind of, like, baseline idea of how much labor this was. And I Mm -hmm. could quote statistics, I'm not going to, but I could could quote statistics, and I had this kind of an intellectual idea. But I still was not really prepared Mm -hmm. for finding myself in a world where those statistics were more a necessity to my own life. Right, because you have this historical and I guess you could say theoretical in the formal sense knowledge, but then you also, you had experience already with textile work. Yeah, so I (laughs) have been crafting basically as long as I can remember existing. I've been probably crocheting since I was five knitting probably a little bit later than that maybe like seven or eight Wow. when I was very young my mom used to make us clothes like me and my siblings and then I got to take the scraps of that fabric and I could make clothes for my dolls oh that's cool and then eventually you get to a point where you realize that doll clothes are basically just tiny clothes Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you could make bigger versions of them 
and wear them yourself. Well, I started making clothes for myself probably in middle school and with the help of my mother. I was taught by my mother and my grandmother, which is one of the very traditional ways that women are taught these kind of like domestic textile crafts Mm -hmm. historically and still often in modern times as well. And then starting in high school, I started doing more self-directed projects where I made mostly costumes for myself and my friends. Um, And very rarely I would make kind of special occasion-y outfits. But if I was going to take the time investment into making an article of clothing, it was going to be an interesting article of clothing, right? Mm -hmm. And it was not going to be something that was going to be an everyday use kind of Mm. situation, which meant the level of skill and technical ability and durability in it was probably not what you would need for something to last. Yeah, I guess for more everyday wear, you need more reinforcement and hemming and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to go into more detail about why exactly you went from You sometimes make clothes, and you know how to make clothes, and you sometimes make them for special occasions, not everyday wear, to why you're doing it for everyday wear. Yeah, so in January of 2020, and I'm going to try and say this without saying anything that is not medically and scientifically provable. So in January of 2020, I went to a conference in Washington, D.C. It was a Greek and Roman art and archaeology conference, so there were definitely people from Italy there. But it was before COVID was in the U.S. Mm because it was January of 2020. Right. And I got a really bad cold that lasted for a couple of weeks. And then for about the next five months, I had a cough that lasted for about five months. Goodness. That was eventually diagnosed as a post-viral cough. And it finally went away after a round of steroids and an albuterol inhaler. And then, around the same time as that, like, five-month cough, I also started developing or intensifying all of these allergies that, if I had them before, they had never really affected me in my daily life. So, for example, I was raised, and my entire life I have had pets. And I've had cats and dogs my entire life, and suddenly I was having trouble breathing, and my eyes were itching all of the time, living with the same cat that we had had for, at that point, about 10 years. And I got tested, and some of these allergies were proven by tests, like cats and dogs and grass and things like that, that do have tests. Other allergies, they don't have tests for, like the allergy to synthetic fabrics. So what ends up happening when I have prolonged skin contact with synthetic fabrics, it starts with just being very itchy and hot and a little bit of a burning itch. And then eventually I get hives and my skin gets rashy and I eventually start having some kind of other anaphylactic symptoms as well. So officially I don't have an allergy because there is no official test to see if that's an allergy. The allergist said, well, we could make a test. Basically, you would just bring in some fabrics and we would adhese them to your skin and you would walk around with that for a couple of weeks and we would see what happened and if you had a reaction, which 
That sounds very unpleasant. It sounded like torture, and I'm like, or I could just not do that. And she's like, yes, or you could just not wear synthetic fabrics if not wearing synthetic fabrics is not, like, taking care of the situation for you. So I went with the route that didn't involve torture. Right. (laughs) Um, Because I don't like torture. Yeah. Generally speaking, but also, like, I don't like to torture myself. Yeah. Other than, you know, the dissertation process. <laughs> For sure. So you find out that most clothes that you can buy today are going to make you very, very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You have the skill set necessary to make your own clothes. Mm-hmm. So how do you start going about doing that? Or like, did you immediately jump to, I need to make my own clothes? Or like, what was your process here? So initially, I started with the things that were pretty easy to get. The clothes that I'm wearing right now, I have a long sleeve t-shirt, pretty easy to find, made out of cotton. I'm wearing jeans. Those are pretty easy to find in the men's department, made out of cotton, because Mm -hmm. denim itself, as the base fabric of denim, is technically supposed to be 100% cotton. But if you look at the fiber content of most women's jeans, it is at least 15 to 20% some sort of elastic, spandex, elastine, some sort of like poly blend to make it stretchy. Yeah. So that your butt looks nice. Yeah. In jeans. Um, So I can find usually jeans or chinos or khakis or something like that in the men's department. Okay. That I can wear because it is more common to be able to find 100% cotton clothing in the men's department than in the women's department. I also am a uh, plus size woman. I am right at the edge of the sizing scale. So I can wear a quote unquote normal size XL or XXL and I can wear the lower end of the plus size. And if you look at the fiber content of clothing in those two different categories of, like, clothing, if you look in those two different departments in the women's section, you're more likely to find clothing that is 100% cotton or 100% wool or something like that in the quote-unquote normal section than in the plus-size section. So as a plus-sized woman, I found myself ending up buying a lot more men's clothes because that was easier to find in my size Mm. in fiber contents that I could actually wear. Ironically, this was also happening about the same time that Christine was transitioning. Mm. So we ended up kind of having to buy two entirely new wardrobes at the same time. (laughs) We ended up going opposite on the gender spectrum of clothing purchases where like I just kind of inherently got more butch because... Mm -hmm. You can find denim and t-shirts and flannels in the men's department that are 100% cotton. Yeah. (laughs) So I just kind of inherently leaned into the butch side as Christine was getting more and more femme clothes. That's kind of cute. It it is. (laughs) Uh, I did get permission from Christine to tell this side of the story, and it was maybe a little less awkward when Christine was the one interviewing me and could... (laughs) Yeah, say it for herself could say it for herself i just want to say that this is not me just like talking about christine's transition without permission okay that's good to have yeah and so how did you find out 
um, information about fabric content? Do you did you have to like go through and like read every tag or like yes you literally you physically literally went physically uh, reading every tag. It's also very ordering clothes online is either incredibly easy or incredibly difficult mm. because most of the time when you order clothes online, it says what the fiber content is. Like, it'll say on the thing. But if you're ordering from someplace like Amazon, Mm -hmm. half of the time the listed fiber content is wrong. Yeah. So sometimes you buy a shirt that will say that it's 100% cotton, and then you wear it, and then you find yourself covered in hives. Oof. And you realize that something is not right. Or, more frequently, and actually right now, like, my armpit itches, because... What happens is that the actual fabric of the shirt Mm. is cotton, but the thread that they use for sergers pretty much universally is made out of nylon. So this shirt is made out of cotton, but the serger thread, which is the part in a t-shirt that is kind of like overlocked, so like you you see lots of threads cutting over each other so that Mm -hmm. it's both stretchy but also won't fray. Uh. Okay. So that's the stuff that's on the cuffs of your t-shirt, on the on the inside seams, and around the uh, around the armpit. That thread itself, I'm allergic to. So oh. sometimes I'll be fine wearing the shirt itself, but in the places where the seam is touching my skin, it'll be a little bit uncomfortable. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes me think about fabric that I wasn't thinking about before. It occurs to me we are sitting on a fabric couch right now. <laughs> So is it just clothing that you have to worry about? It is not. Actually, uh, we are sitting on my fabric couch, um, and normally I have a cover that goes over this couch Okay. that is currently sitting on the other couch folded because we washed it and I never put it back on the couch, and then the cats slept on it. Oh, no. And then I'm like, well, now it's covered in another thing that I'm allergic to. Yeah. Um, so I made a cover for this couch, uh... So that I could sit on it in the, mostly in the summer mm. without causing a problem. Because right now it is, uh, as we're recording this, it is December um, in, you know, Massachusetts. So it is cold <laughs> outside. It's, it's pretty chilly, yeah. So I am wearing uh, socks and jeans and a long sleeve t-shirt. So the amount of my skin that's actually touching this couch is minimal at the moment. Mm. But in the summer, if I'm wearing short sleeves, then there's a certain amount of my skin that's going to be just touching this uh, couch, and that is unpleasant without a thing. So there are certain things that um, you can't just buy. Right. Uh, Finding a couch that is covered in something that is not uh, synthetic is going to be impossible to find, because synthetic fabrics have their uses, right? Mm-hmm. That we use them for a lot of things because they're more durable. Mm. So you don't you want your couch to last. Um so you want it to be made out of a synthetic fabric usually. Um it's it's just I have a really weird use case where that doesn't work for me. And there's a couple of other cases where like there are things in my life that I want to have in my life that synthetic fabrics make possible mm. that I still need to find ways to use that are safe for me. So with the couch, I have a barrier method. I made a cover that can go between me and the synthetic fiber. Practice safe sitting. Yes, to practice safe sitting. To practice safe driving. 
you wear a seatbelt, right? Yes. And in order for that seatbelt to be effective, that is also very tightly woven nylon. Okay. Right? So that it doesn't snap. Mm -hmm. Because the whole purpose of that uh, seatbelt is that it is a strong enough fiber that, like, it can be a force strong enough to throw a human body through a windshield, and that one piece of fabric will hold you in place. Right. And I want that. I mm-hmm. obviously don't want to fly through a windshield if I get <laughs> into a car accident. Yeah. But also, uh, I am a person with breasts, which means that the seatbelt does not sit nicely across my shoulder, as it was designed to do for people without breasts. Hmm. It ends up sitting across my neck and in between my breasts, which is what happens if you are a person with breasts <laughs> yeah. uh, wearing a seatbelt, which means that if I'm in the car for a long period of time and the regular seatbelt is touching my neck, then I will have an allergic reaction Yeah, where that happens. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to wear a seatbelt, because that would be dangerous. Right. So again, I made a barrier method. (laughs) I made a a little cushion uh, thing that goes around my seatbelt. It's made out of flannel. And therefore, the flannel is what touches my skin. I still have the benefit of the seatbelt, so that I don't fly through the windshield. But I don't have... To deal with the allergic reaction. Another example of this we talked about in another podcast episode, and that is with the RSI gloves, mm. right? Both as a crafter and as someone who writes for a living yeah. and sometimes codes and does a lot of general typing uh, things. I end up getting repetitive strain injuries on my wrists. And especially when I was finishing my dissertation, I was having the problem where in order for RSI gloves to work, you need them to have, like, elasticity, right? They need to compress in Mm -hmm. order for them to have an effect. And in order for that, you need to have elastic or spandex or some sort of synthetic fabric so that it has that elasticity. But when I was finishing my dissertation, I was finding myself in the situation where I had to choose between either pushing through... Uh, and writing while I was having RSI problems, which anyone with RSI problems knows is a terrible idea. Yeah, don't do that. And it causes more and more problems. Or wearing RSI gloves and having an allergic reaction while still trying to push through and write my dissertation. Yeah, which is also quite unpleasant. (laughs) Which is also not a great idea. So I ended up getting through writing my dissertation with the allergic reaction version of that because... I had to finish a dissertation, and then once I finished my dissertation, I made my own RSI gloves. And we'll link to it on the in the show notes, but I released a free software pattern yes. of, of these, uh, and there's, like, multiple versions of it. And the version I made for myself has, again, a barrier method, so the inner layer that touches my skin is made out of a cotton a cotton that's still stretchy but doesn't have enough elasticity that it would work as a on its own as mm. an RSI glove and then an outer layer that is spandex so that it has okay. the compression so like if i'm resting my ha- like my chin on my hand while wearing the RSI glove for mm. a long period of time then that's going to cause a problem but the part that's necessarily touching my skin is not going to be a problem okay that makes sense you have these things you're discussing prolonged contact, your clothing, these gloves, the couch. What about things you just brush across in your daily life? Like, 
don't know, your purse, for example. So my purse is another thing that I make myself. Some some casual contact is fine, like reusable grocery bags. Mm-hmm. I can carry that from the store to my car and then from my car inside, and it's fine Okay. for that amount of contact. For my purse, uh, the strap, for example, mm-hmm. if I'm going to be wearing that and that's going to be touching my neck for mm-hmm. a long period, longer period of time, then that's going to be a problem. Okay. So for the strap of my purse, what I ended up doing is I ended up uh, weaving the strap using uh, tablet weaving, which is something that I learned, again, as part of my dissertation research, okay. because that is a method of... Uh, of like border patterns that was used in the Roman Empire mm-hmm. um, to uh, for like decorative like borders and belts and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so I That's did cool. I did tablet weaving for for that, and I ended up using embroidery floss for that because embroidery floss is one hundred percent cotton. Okay. Nice. So uh, so I did that, and then you have to think about things that are not necessarily like things that you would have control over. So, Mm. for example, um, we learned pretty quickly that, like, my bedsheets matter, right? So, So I uh, got sheets and bedding for my bed that was 100% cotton or cotton linen blend Mm. um, that that I was fine with. but, for example, if my wife is sleeping next to me mm-hmm. and she is wearing uh, pajamas that mm-hmm. have a poly blend in there, uh, we discovered the hard way that uh, that could lead to, like, neither of us getting much sleep because I would be awake scratching and keep us both awake because I was... Having a reaction to what Christine was wearing. Right. Also, I can control my bedding. Mm -hmm. I cannot control the bedding at a hotel, for example. So I now travel with my own set of sheets. Uh, Yeah. So I discovered that you can do a lot with two uh, flat twin-size sheets. Um, Okay. One twin-size sheet will fit basically a queen-size bed. So, like, if you have the flat top sheet mm-hmm. for a, a twin set you can cover a, a queen size bed and it'll cover like the t- top surface of a queen size bed so i travel with uh two flat twin size sheets and some pillowcases so that i again have that barrier yeah. um between myself and uh hotel sheets which i mean was not a terrible idea anyway probably not yeah um and then there's other things that are maybe weirder for you to, like, intentionally be like, excuse me, and allow me to throw this sheet over uh, over this. Like, for example, if you're sitting on public transportation and yeah. the bus seat is made yeah. out of uh, a synthetic fabric. So right. I found myself just more likely to wear pants or a longer skirt if I was going into public because... Mm-hmm then I could control how much of my skin was exposed. Because I can control how much of my skin is exposed. I cannot mm-hmm. control my environment everywhere. Yeah. Um, another one that I learned the hard way is I can control my body, but I can't control other people's bodies. So what if right. the person who's sitting next to you on public transportation is wearing synthetic fabrics? 
it's really hard to explain to that person it's not you <laughs> it's your sweater and i'm sorry i know this plane seat is already like half the size of a human but mm-hmm. like i cannot touch you yeah yeah. So I, n- I had to, like, find some very thin uh, overshirts if I was going to be traveling on a plane in mm. the summer. Yeah. Because I didn't want to get too hot, but I also mm. couldn't risk just wearing short sleeves and not having any sort of barrier. Absolutely, yeah. Wow. That's a lot of things that I would not have thought about. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we've discussed um, finding clothes that are not going to cause an allergic reaction. And we've discussed making protective items for things that you can't make yourself or that would be onerous to make yourself. But what about actually making clothes, which is sort of what we said this was going to be about, right? Yeah. So eventually you get to a point where you can't just wear t-shirts and jeans for things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sadly. I mean, I got very far in this process where I could just wear t-shirts and jeans and pajama pants because this started, as I said, in 2020. Right. And I was not leaving my house for like a good two years Uh of that time. Um, So like I got pretty far without having to actually make my own clothes. Mm -hmm. And then there are times when you cannot get away with a t-shirt and jeans so like my sister-in-law got married and the dress code for her wedding was a uh, black tie optional and finding formal wear women's formal wear Hmm. that has no synthetic fabrics is functionally impossible yeah and i mean you can find some 100 percent silk things Hmm. but those are one, prohibitively expensive. Right. Two, typically made for people who are like size double zero and definitely not made for plus size women. And three, a lot of times if something is labeled 100% silk, what they're talking about is the outer layer, oh. which is what looks pretty. But then if you look at the actual label, it'll mm. say that the outer layer is 100% silk, but the lining is 100% polyester. So finding women's formal wear that doesn't have at least the lining fabric in polyester is functionally impossible. Impossible. So I had to make my dress for that wedding because I did not think that it would be appropriate for me to show up in like a, a cotton sundress. Right. Which I, I I have gone to other weddings since this mm. uh since these allergies started being a thing wearing like cotton uh cotton dresses but mm-hmm. those were weddings that either didn't specify a uh, dress code or were like semi-formal okay um but a black tie optional i felt like i couldn't really yeah get away with that right as yeah. a uh, as an option so i ended up having to make a dress um and even with that, like, silk is still prohibitively expensive. Yes. <laughs> so what I ended up finding was I found silk organza, which is like a sheer fabric. Okay. Um, on sale, like on a clearance sale. We love these. That I, that I could actually afford um, for, like, the pretty outer layer that you could see. Mm. And then I made the lining out of uh, stretchy cotton <laughs> that, like, no one could actually see and was comfortable. Good. And stretchy. <laughs> so I had to make a I had to make a dress for that. That was the first major thing that I made. Now, had you made a dress before? Yes. 
Well, for like a full-sized human, not for a doll, I guess. For, I mean. Yes, for, for full-sized humans, yes. So most of them were costumes. Okay. So like I, I have made multiple Renaissance Fair costumes. Um, oh, that's quite complex from what I've seen anyway. That is quite complex. And there's, there's a different type of complexity between like making a bodice for a Renaissance Fair mm-hmm. costume and making a dress that is intended to be worn... With a bra, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also, side note, haven't talked about underwear yet, but try finding a bra that doesn't yeah. have any synthetic fabric. Yeah. Typically, mm. the bras that I end up wearing are basically, like, very overstretched training bras. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, they're, they're, like, just, like, kind of co- very simple cotton bras that have the mm. option for, like, a lining that I can uh, fit in there. But yeah, that, so that's a completely different thing that I probably eventually will need to start making on my own. Mm. But I have not because that is intimidating. That's it sounds very intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've also made other dresses uh, for other occasions. I made my dress for my sister's wedding. Um, okay. Mainly because there was a style I liked, but I couldn't mm. find it in the right colors for her wedding. So okay. I made a dress that had like a. At the time, there was a popular style that was like kind of a nude underdress and then a black lace uh, overdress. And I wanted the black lace overdress, but with uh, a lilac underdress because those were the colors of her wedding. That sounds really pretty. So, so I made, I made that, but then again, I could, I can't wear that dress anymore because the fabrics that that was made out of were synthetic. Because if you go to like a Joanne fabrics Mm -hmm. or, you know, most of the, big box fabric stores and you look in the formal wear section those fabrics are going to be almost entirely polyester that makes sense because like as we've been saying throughout this most of the fabrics in our daily lives nowadays do have you know synthetic fiber in them it might actually be interesting to discuss where you do get your fabric there are a couple of ways that i get fabric So one of them is actually the kind of big box fabric stores. And what you can find there consistently in fabrics that I can handle is quilting fabric. Okay. Which is 100% cotton pretty much always. Quilting fabric is pretty much universally safe for me. Mm. Even the stuff that's got like um, gold threads in it or something like that. Somehow it's still 100% cotton. I've burn tested it and it's... Mm. Have you... Are you familiar with burn testing? I'm not. So you can tell if a fabric is synthetic by basically starting it on fire. (laughs) And if you start it on fire and it melts, then it is synthetic. That makes sense. And if it burns, then it's not synthetic. And how it burns will determine what kind of natural fiber it is. So like cotton burns differently than silk, burns differently than wool. And you'll definitely know if you're burning wool because it smells. Yeah, because that's hair. <laughs> yeah, because it's hair. Right. <laughs> um, so, like, consistently you can tell if something's got synthetic fabric in it based off of how it burns versus melts. Which is also another reason why this episode might be relevant to people who are not just the sample set of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you're not allergic to synthetic fibers, if you want to start using more organic fi- fabrics and fibers in your own things, one of the reasons you might want to do that is because synthetic fibers, like, melt. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a fire and you're wearing synthetic fabrics, 
it will melt to your skin. Yeah. And give you much higher degree burns than if you're wearing cotton, which will burn, but it won't melt to your skin. Yeah. So I can get quilting fabric just about anywhere you can get fabric. Okay. There is one really good local shop near here that is a quilting shop that also has some other types of fabric. Like I've gotten some really good linen fabric from there as well to make like dress pants and stuff like that. And then the rest of it, I order online. Okay. Um, and there are various places online that you can order it. Some of them have gone out of business recently, which is frustrating. Yeah. Um, and some of them are consolidating under places like Amazon, which decreases the reliability of things like what the fiber content is. Yeah. Important information to have. Yeah. In fact, that is why I was able to find the silk for the dress for my sister-in-law's wedding on clearance was because that particular online fabric uh, distributor was going out of business. Oh. Did you did you load up or did you just get what you needed? I did not because I did not realize that that's why it was on clearance. Ah, I see. That's it was like, I bought that and then like a month or two later I was like, I should go back and get some other fabric. Oh. Oh. No. Yeah. That... That's a bummer. Mm-hmm. There's also the question of where synthetic fabrics come from, right? Because these are petroleum products. These are, you know, it's been in sort of the news and the literature lately about microplastics, right? And they most are of destroying those, our world, yes. Yeah, and most of those come from clothes, right? Yeah. So. And also, we so we currently live in a society where we have these fabrics that last for way longer than fabrics ever have historically, right? Mm, yeah. But at the same time, we live in a society where people wear these fabrics for a much shorter amount of time than they ever have historically, right? Like, fast fashion is a thing. So you get these clothes that are made out of synthetic fabrics, and these fabrics will last in a landfill for, like, years and years and years longer Mm -hmm. than a cotton shirt would. Right. But you're only wearing it for, like... You know, maybe one or two wears sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not. I've never been that person. I've been the kind of like wear them until they wear out and then yeah. then mend them yeah. kind of person. But um, as a society, mm-hmm. that is where we are. So it's not environmentally sustainable to continue sure. uh, using this level of microplastics in mm-hmm. our clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's much cheaper. Yeah than using natural fibers, um, and the clothes last longer. Well, it's much cheaper because we have designed our society around using that, right? I mm-hmm. mean, let's see, synthetic fabrics are relatively new. If we went back in time maybe a hundred years, and we just never invented synthetic fabric, what would things look like? And I think that you know your, your usage of uh, organic fabrics is sort of maybe a a test case, right? Of Mm -hmm. figuring out how you actually do this in the modern world. Well, mine is still an outlier though, right? Because if if we if we go back in history, Mm -hmm. if we if we get in our time machine and we prevent the invention of synthetic fabrics. Which might not be what we want anyway, but that's Which might which I mean we still need the seat belts and the RSI gloves. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Like there are still things that like synthetic fabrics save lives Mm -hmm. and like have very specific use cases that, like, we need. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But like if we if we have this like, you know, potential alternate universe where synthetic fabrics never became part of the clothing industry, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Um then my use case wouldn't be relevant. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the whole point of this is surviving in a world that's built around a synthetic fabric textile industry. Right. When you can't use synthetic fabrics. So, for example, I spoke about how pretty much universally all of the thread used for sergers is nylon. Mm. And that's because sergers basically put the thread through a lot more machinery in order to make it do what it needs to do. Okay. So if you use a cotton thread for that, you're going to end up with more breaking threads. That doesn't mean that it's not possible. In mm-hmm. fact, I have a serger in the other room, and I do use cotton threads for it. And I end up having to rethread it a lot because yeah. they break, mm-hmm. but it can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that things would be different if we lived in that alternate universe where synthetic fabrics were never part of the textile industry. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's probably an important conversation to start having, honestly. I agree. So you you talked about making formal wear, Mm -hmm. and you talked about running into more issues with the kinds of clothes that you're wearing. What all do you make now? So the step under formal wear Mm -hmm. is business wear. Right. So, uh, So I, within the last couple of months, got a job where, like, I have to be in places and look like a professional more frequently mm-hmm. than I have because I've been working remotely for almost this entire period since uh, this allergy became a thing. And over the last few months, I, uh, I am now the executive director of uh, the World History Association, so I need to like look like a professional adult more frequently. I have yet to find a pair of women's dress pants that is not made of synthetic fabrics and even the ones that are made out of wool Mm -hmm. the pockets are made out of almost entirely polyester yeah most women's dress pants are just entirely polyester yeah so i have had to make dress pants and i can get away with like in my day-to-day life for work, I can get away with wearing, like, chinos and mm-hmm. uh, corduroy. Because corduroy is 100% cotton. Ooh. If it's, like, actual corduroy. Mm-hmm. Um, you can still, like, some of it still has, like, poly blends in it to make it stronger and stuff like that. But, like, you can find corduroy pants that are 100% cotton. Uh, and okay. I have uh, those that I wear for work. But if I need, if I need to wear, like, dress pants... Mm-hmm. I have a couple pairs that I have made myself. Yeah, such as if you're going to a conference where you're talking about uh, yeah. making your own clothes because you have a, a fabric allergy. <laughs> yes, such as that. Although that was a remote conference, so I'm pretty sure I was wearing pajama pants. Ah, fantastic. <laughs> for that conference. Much preferred conference outfit. Yes. And then uh, I've also made, um, more recently, some uh, some like collared shirts because you you would think that that would be an easy thing to find in cotton, right? Mm, yeah. Like a simple cotton button-up shirt. Mm-hmm. That should be something you can find, right? Right. Uh, and it is something you can find in the men's department. In the men's department. Yeah. But as previously stated, I am a person with breasts. Mm-hmm. And men's button-up shirts are not made for my body type. Right. And if I need to dress in a business casual 
or a business attire than with my body type wearing a men's button-up shirt is going to look like it just doesn't fit me. Right. Uh, and women's button-up shirts are incredibly difficult to find in 100% cotton. Mm-hmm. And usually when you do find it, they are incredibly plain. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, if you want any of the cute patterns or whatever, yeah. then you either need to deal with the synthetic fabrics or you need to make it yourself. That makes sense. Uh, and this is where we cycle back to the uh, quilting fabric, which yeah. is cute fabric, uh-huh. 100% cotton, and you can absolutely make button-up shirts out of it. I think I remember in your one of the episodes about your dissertation, you talked about going through the entire process of making a garment mm-hmm. from, I think you talked about, did you shear a sheep? I it? have not sheared a sheep, but, but that is part of the process. Wool. Yeah. Okay. Presumably, at an individual level, as the, uh, I think it's the YouTube channel How to Make Everything demonstrates, at an individual level, if you make everything from literal scratch, it's prohibitively expensive and time-consuming. Yes. Um, so that's not a viable method of, of doing it. You can't, you know, have your own cotton fields, for example. Well, I mean, I have a yard. Right. But in order to grow enough cotton to provide myself with enough fiber mm-hmm. to keep my wardrobe. Yeah. Like basically I would have to turn my entire yard mm-hmm. into a cotton field. Mm-hmm. And it would be a lot of labor. A lot of labor. And it would basically just be my entire life. Yeah. So that's not possible. Right. And uh to go through the whole process would also mean spinning it myself. Mm-hmm. Um and so the the other type of garment that I make uh, that we're going to talk about next is is about socks. And mm-hmm. for example, I do spin my own yarn, um, but I don't trust the yarn that I spin myself mm. as sock yarn. Okay. Because the yarn that is spun by uh, machines mm. is going to be inherently stronger than the yarn that I spin with a drop spindle. And... There are probably people out there who can spin, that might be able to spin, like, tighter and higher quality yarn than a machine. Mm -hmm. I mean, machine-made things are notoriously not always better than handmade things. Right. But the level of quality and durability of the yarn that I spin, Mm -hmm. I don't trust for the amount of wear that happens with socks, which are yeah. on my feet that I walk on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, even just discussing now, you've mentioned socks a couple times. And when I've heard this come up in the past, you've mentioned socks in particular yep. as one thing that you make yourself. So do you want to go into why that is and how you make them and all that stuff? Yeah. So socks are the one item of clothing that I need in my daily life mm-hmm. that I have not been able to find commercially available in a way that I can wear. And if you, if anyone out there has links, please send them to me. I have not been able to find any socks in women's sizes mm-hmm. that are commercially available that have no synthetic fabric. Um, the closest I have found is like 84% cotton and like 16% polyester or spandex or whatever. That, I mean, that's better than the 100% polyester that most, like, Hanes socks or whatever mm. are. But, like, it turns out it's not enough. And, mm. like, 
I, I figured out the socks thing in degrees because, like I said, that is better. So, like, initially I was just wearing the regular socks that always felt like they were too tight, no matter how loose I got. I bought them to begin with, and my feet were always red and itchy hmm. and kind of painful. And I got some that were, like, 50% cotton. Now, that was better. Okay. It was a little bit better. And then I got some that were, like, 70% cotton, and that was a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And then I got some that were, like, 84% cotton, and that was better. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that it's the the only way to, for it to actually be better, for me to not just kind of continually be having an allergic reaction on my feet, mm -hmm. is for me to have socks that don't have synthetic fabric in them. Yeah. And even with socks that are handmade by someone else, so like you go to a craft store and you buy socks that were handmade by some other crafter, there is a very high chance that those socks are going to contain some level of uh, synthetic fabrics because it's sturdier hmm. and... It's already more expensive to buy handmade socks because a person had to sit there and make them, and that's a lot yeah. of labor. Yeah. And you want to pay that knitter mm -hmm. for their labor of making those socks. Right. And Very high-skilled labor. It's very high-skilled labor. It takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And people are less likely to continue buying your socks for your highly-skilled labor mm -hmm. if they only last for, you know five to ten wears before they start getting holes. Right. So if you're going to be selling socks, you're going to use something with some sort of poly blend so that they last longer, so that people will continue buying your socks. This makes sense. But that doesn't work for my use case. Mm. So since December of 2022, I have been making my own socks. So in a little bit less than a year, I have made about 25 pairs of socks. Wow. And I now am at the point where I can just wear socks that I've made. Okay. And I have been for quite a while at this point. Initially, it was like I had three pairs of socks and I was doing a hand wash load of socks like every other day because I was like, I needed to have one on my feet mm -hmm. and then like wash two pairs at a time. And then mm -hmm. like it was worth that extra labor to not be having a constant allergic reaction. So sure. I'm at the point where I don't need to be constantly doing a hand wash load of socks every other day and I can wear my own socks and what I did and you're sitting in my living room so I can show this to you yes Morgan is pulling out a black binder right now that is opening to reveal uh it looks like there are pieces of yarn stapled on one side and then a hand-drawn spreadsheet yeah so. so I mean it the graph was printed and then uh I wrote out the information for the different socks that I've done, they're numbered so that I can keep track. And then I stapled a little bit of the yarn I was using so that one, I can tell over time how much the color fades mm. with the number of washes. And two, so that I can identify which one was which. So yeah. like, for example, this yarn here, which is also this yarn, these two are basically the same yarns, uh, but in different colors. The socks I made out of these I can no longer wear. Okay. They have they got holes. I darned them, mm. which is basically like how you mend holes in socks. They got holes. I darned them. They got more holes. I darned them. They got more holes. I darned them. And then eventually they were just kind of like misshapen and hard mm. and didn't really stay on my feet anymore. Well, darn. 
Yes, darn. Um, so, but I know that it was these two because I have the little bits of yarn on there and I can match it to it. Yeah. So this is my kind of like, again, sample set of one, mm-hmm. uh, one su- subject testing them, but I am testing the different fiber content, the different sizes and gauges of yarn, the different techniques and patterns of uh, socks that I'm using. Um, and honestly, I've really stuck to one tutorial for how to do socks hmm. and then done two variations of it. So one a cuff down and one a toe up just to limit the number of variables. Hmm. I don't know what this means, but I assume the like knitters out there will understand what you just said. Well, I mean, if you think about a sock, uh-huh. Toe up means that you start at the toe. Okay. And you go up. Okay, that makes sense. And cuff down means you start at the cuff and you go down. Oh, okay. Neat. I prefer cuff down uh, Mm. because then it's less obvious where you started. Mm. Um, But it's a personal preference. Makes sense. So I'm using this so that I can try and get the most amount of wear for the least amount of labor right uh out of my socks and i'm keeping track of it i have my quote-unquote local yarn shop i'm incredibly lucky with where i live Mm. um there is a yarn shop near here that also happens to be the warehouse for yarn.com which is the biggest like online retailer of yarn in the u.s okay so like I can go to a nearby yarn shop that mm-hmm. has basically, like, everything yeah. that you could possibly need That's for yarn. Good. So I'm keeping track of things so that I can tell, for example, um, the Bamboo Pop yarn was really durable. It was pretty quick to knit. It is fairly comfortable. Um, and I've already bought another ball of it because I got two pairs of socks out of one ball. So, like... For the price differential, uh, mm-hmm. it's less expensive because I can get basically four socks out of one ball of yarn. There you go. So I already bought another ball, so I now have four pairs that are all kind of matching, uh, which also means that I don't have to like make sure like which one goes with which because I just have four of the same type and I can be like, these ones. Yeah. So I'm keeping track of uh, quality over time and the time invest- time mm. investment that it takes to make them. Because basically, keeping myself clothed at this point has become a part-time job. Yeah. So how much time goes into making a pair of socks? That varies quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give a disclaimer that like... So for like for my dissertation research, I timed how long it took me to spin a certain amount of yarn because that was part of my dissertation research. Okay. For my sock, quote-unquote, research, this isn't like a scientifically rigorous study or something like that. I'm mostly just, like, I'm knitting whenever I can. So Mm -hmm. uh, if you've been to a hack and craft in the last year, then you have probably seen me knitting socks. Um, If when I go to the allergy office to get my allergy shot, they make you sit there for a half hour to make sure you don't go into anaphylaxis. So for that half hour, I am knitting socks. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I'm sitting and watching TV, I'm knitting socks. When I am sitting at the airport waiting for a plane, I am knitting socks. So I'm not, like, tracking the actual amount of time Mm. that I'm doing this. It's just kind of, like, something I do when I have free time. Gotcha. Um, Which, 
by the way, historically is pretty accurate for how this kind of domestic labor was done, mm. especially for things that could easily be picked up and put down mm. as needed. So uh, these are kind of estimates, but it depends also on how fine the socks are. So if you're using like a very fine gauge um, needle, so if you're using like a size one or two needle with a very thin yarn, then it could take you like, or it could take me like 40 hours for a pair oh, of socks, Okay, which is a work week. Yeah. If I am using a thicker yarn with larger needles, say mm. like a size six needle, then I can probably get a pair of socks done in like 15 hours. Okay. And those have kind of different uses too, right? Like, so the thicker socks I'm going to probably want more of in the winter because they're going to be warmer. In the summer, I probably don't want very thick wool socks because that's going to be hot and uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, as far as durability goes, uh, you, since you're sitting here, might notice that these mm-hmm. these two that have worn out, what, what can you tell about this yarn? Let me... Compared to, say, the next one over. It seems thinner. It's much thinner. Yeah. So okay. the thinner ones wear out much quicker. If, you, if you're wearing away at anything, the thinner it is, the less time it's going to take to wear away at, right? That makes sense. Um, so the thinner socks both take a lot longer to make mm-hmm. and take less time to wear out. Okay. Now, also, these were... So this is sock three... Four and five uh, were the ones that that I can no longer wear. Those were in my first five pairs of socks that I made, which means that at that point it was still when I was having to do like multiple hand wash loads of socks a week mm-hmm. and wearing them more frequently because I only had five pairs of socks. Mm-hmm. So that also factors in so we need to look at like the number of times they were worn and not necessarily like oh well they only lasted three months right that makes sense well uh one more point on that then as well if we're looking at these first five pairs you'll notice that one and two are still in the in the rotation and it's just Mm. three through five that are no longer and two is about the same size right Mm -hmm. Uh, of thread but this is 100 percent cotton and the three pairs that uh, are no longer in use are wool. Oh, okay. So cotton has been more durable, in my experience. Um, and then number one, which is the one that got the most use because it was the literal first pair of socks that I made. So like mm-hmm. at one point it was like, well, I'm going to wash these like every other day. Yeah. Uh, and they were only not on my feet because they were being washed mm-hmm. and dry. That one was made out of... Uh, a blend of, uh, well, it was two two different yarns. Uh, one of them was about the same size of, uh, the same gauge of cotton, a cotton modal blend, and then uh, a thicker gauge of wool on the toe, toe and heel. Okay. So, like, those have been pretty, pretty sturdy. What does uh, it mean that it's modal? Modal is one of the types of fabric that, and we haven't talked about this yet, so that's actually a good question. It's one of the types of fabric that is technically a plant-based fabric. Technically? Technically. Sometimes they are still considered synthetic fabrics because the process that is required to make them is 
so involved and uses so many chemicals that, mm-hmm. like, from a sustainability standpoint, it's mm-hmm. not really, like, the same as, like, cotton or wool. Okay. So, modal I can usually wear. Okay. Um, usually modal doesn't uh, cause a problem for me. Usually I can wear bamboo. There's some things like tencel and lyocell and rayon, which are again technically plant based. Hmm. Uh, like if you if you put them under a microscope microscope, you would see cells. Okay. But um, oftentimes the chemicals used in the process of making those plant fibers into um, into fabrics mm-hmm. is so harsh that it still gives me the same reaction as synthetic fabrics. Okay. And that's something that I just learned through trial and error. Sometimes even things that I consider quote unquote safe end up not being safe. Okay. And I'm assuming that the process to make modal fabric makes it more durable, makes it, you know, it gives it these various characteristics. Yeah. And those are usually like wood pulp based. Okay. Which makes it a little bit more, uh, a little bit more durable. Mm. And when you think of wood, you don't think of like fabric right because wood is typically typically like hard and stiff yeah um which is why the process that's used to make that wood pulp into fabric is Mm. like basically like putting it in a cellular blender and yeah like cutting it down so that it's soft and pliable literally pliable because that means that you can like make a thread out of it and twist it together so yeah it's it's one of those things where I'm I'm not going to get into like the scientific process of uh, making plant-based uh, fibers, but mm. there's a difference in process between cotton where you pick it and you can like you could just pick cotton off of the plant, mm. comb it and then spin it. You probably need to like clean it out a little bit. It's a little bit difficult to do because it's got a fairly short staple. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can do there. it. There's seeds in there. Yeah. Again, with wool, you can shear a sheep. You want to clean it because it smells like sheep. Yeah. It's probably got some hay in there. Mm-hmm. Probably got some sheep poop in there. Um, <laughs> but you could just shear it off the sheep and spin it, and it would, like, make thread. Linen is a slightly more <laughs> complex process, but, like, they've been making linen fabric for thousands of years because it's still doable without complex chemical processes Mm. whereas things like modal and rayon and stuff like that it's like a chemical process gotcha so what was it like for you as a you know someone who's been doing fiber arts sounds like basically your whole life as long as you've been able to and also someone who studied it formally rigorously Mm -hmm. right in in the context of history to actually do these things Well, there's, like, a different context to both of these things, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're making something as a fun project, like, we talked last night at the Hack and Craft and probably a a dozen other Hack and Crafts about how many of us have, like, 50 random craft projects laying around their house Mm -hmm. uh, at any given time because you can pick it up and walk away and there's no really pressing, urgent need to finish it. Right. And... That's different if you need to finish the socks or you don't have socks. Right. Um, And there's 
there's some good quotes when so as a historian there's some good quotes that I that I used in my dissertation that are about like um they're kind of like moral morality play type type uh, things where it's like the the good country woman who's like you know keeping her she's doing like 50 chores she's got to sweep the sweep the hearth and make the bread and she has to spin the wool before uh, before she can make the cloak, and she needs to finish making the cloak before winter. Her family will like freeze to death. Oh yeah. And like, there's an urgency to like actually needing to finish your craft project versus like, I can start a pair of socks and mm-hmm. it'll take me five years to finish because like, it'll be nice to have that pair of socks when it finish when I finish it, but mm-hmm. it's not like necessary versus like but no i need those socks because otherwise my feet will be cold right or i will have an allergic reaction to the socks that i can pick up at target yeah very very different incentives there and and it's also different like reading it from a historical perspective like it's obvious like yes that woman does need to finish spinning the wool so that she can finish weaving the cloak so that her family won't freeze right over winter Mm -hmm. but also like we talk about, like, constructed narratives in history, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that story was obviously a morality story about, like, well, what the good wife is supposed to be doing. Mm. So she's doing 50 chores, and she's baking the bread to feed her family, and she's spinning the wool so that she can clothe her family. And, like, it's a constructive narrative by a man (laughs) about what women should be doing with their time. So, like... There, there's things that we can look at that story and take, like, yes, that, that is a very good point, but also, like, we have to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. So it's different kind of, like, having the lived experience of, oh, but no, I actually need to do this, or I can't go to my sister-in-law's wedding. Right. <laughs> because yeah. I can't just show up in a cotton sundress. Mm-hmm. Or I could, but she would probably not be pleased. Yeah. And you can't show up and be, you know, itching throughout the service or whatever. Yeah, I did actually have an allergic reaction because I wore makeup. Oh, no. (laughs) So I had an allergic reaction to my makeup at the wedding. Oh, man, that's rough. (laughs) After all of the work to... Yeah, you forgot about the other one. Right. Goodness, maybe one day you'll get into makeup. No. (laughs) Hopefully, Hopefully that won't become necessary. We have covered, you know, what you're doing, why you're doing it, to a certain extent how you're doing it. Uh, is there anything else we need to talk about or anything else you want to say? So we talked about how this is like not a rigorous study, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is a sample set of one because as far as I know, like I'm the only person that I know of that has Mm -hmm. this particular allergy. Yeah. I'm the only person my allergist knows of that has this particular allergy. It's funny you mention that. I actually do know another person. Ooh. I don't think that she's allergic to all synthetic fabrics, and I also have not spoken with her in, like, a decade. But she had to make some of her own clothes, too, for mm-hmm. similar reasons. Nice. Yeah. I mean, not nice, because it sucks, I mean, but, yeah. like... <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah. So. so, like... So, usually we kind of end the episodes with, like, how how is this relevant to our audience? Okay. And... I think that some of the things that we talked about, about kind of the nature of the textile industry mm-hmm. and sustainability, yeah. um, it it's relevant in, in those ways, mm-hmm. in that, like, the current 
textile industry globally mm-hmm. is not sustainable. Right. We are producing textiles that last forever, mm-hmm. um, that people are not using yeah. for long periods of time because, like, you're shirt that's got whatever catchphrases in this year is not going to be in next year and therefore people aren't going to be wearing it. I know nothing about fashion so like that's as close as I'm going to veer to actual like fast fashion uh, discussions but like so it's not sustainable and a lot of people are thinking about sustainability in clothing Mm -hmm. options and um, so these are things that we might want to consider in that sense. Mm -hmm. Also if we're talking about FOSS and crafts from the idea of kind of like user freedom, right? making your own clothes opens you up to a lot of user freedom, right? Yeah. So we talked about making my own clothes as an accessibility issue mm-hmm. because of this allergy, but there mm-hmm. are a lot of other reasons that you might want or need to make your own clothes because bodies are weird. Yeah. Right? Or, like, if in my case, I want to learn how to sew my own clothes because I'm a transgender woman. My body is not shaped the way that a cisgender woman's body is shaped, and so things might not be as flattering on me. Exactly. Uh, also, for another reason, another example, I have uh, scoliosis, mm. and, like, the left side of my body is uh, half an inch shorter than the right side of my body. Mm. And if I'm making my own clothes, I can account for that, yeah. and I don't just have, like, one strap of my dress hanging off the shoulder. Yeah. Because bodies are weird, mm-hmm. and there are all kinds of other um, accommodations that, say, if you have to wear, like, an insulin pump that is like an implant or something like that. And you need clothing that will accommodate that. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of reasons that your body might not be uh, built for standard clothing. Um, And that making or modifying your own clothes can be useful. Um, And then another parallel to this is uh, that's actually with... um, allergies is with cooking so there are a lot of Mm. people with food-based allergies right yeah and now there are a lot of uh accommodations for that that are like ready-made off the shelf Mm -hmm. but historically that hasn't always been the case so if you had a gluten allergy or um an allergy to soy or something like that then you had to cook a lot of things manually that other people could just like go to the store and buy right and I ha- I've had this conversation with people who um, have had that experience where, mm-hmm. they're, where they were like, oh, I had to do the same, like a very similar process where it was like a sample set of one where mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out like what my body would react to. Yeah. And therefore, like, even if there were prepackaged things that said that they were safe for me to eat, mm-hmm. like that didn't necessarily mean that my body would be fine because again bodies are weird bodies are really weird every body is unique in fact Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah so can we expect uh more free software patterns and uh are we going to try to start a movement of people making their own clothes or i mean ideally yes um i have some in progress free software patterns that I just have not had time to like write the blog post for. One of them is my purse. Um, in addition to the, um, 
tablet woven strap that mm-hmm. I am not allergic to. Um, this current edition of my purse, I've I've been basically making my iterations of the same purse for the last like fifteen years. That's so um, cool. Again, as an as an accessibility uh, thing, because I have a bad back, mm. and basically, like I, whatever amount of space I have in my purse, I will fill it with things. Yeah, and you don't even notice until like suddenly mm. it's full, and you're like, "Why can't I fit my keys in my purse anymore?" Yeah. Um. So for the past fifteen years, I've been kind of iterating on this same purse pattern. That is exactly the size that I need it to be for everything that I need to fit in my purse mm. and has, like, no extra space. Fantastic. Um, to keep you from temptation. Exactly. Uh, so if I need to carry something else, then I need another bag for it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, I have another free software pattern that I haven't actually written up. Uh, this is... I'm sorry, Juliana can actually see it because she is in person. Those of you who are listening in podcast land will only get a visual description. Um, and also the awful noise of a zipper. Wonderful zipper ASMR. That's what this is. This is oh. my knitting bag specifically for socks. That's so cool. Um, that, I, that I made. Uh, that I have all of the components to make a free software pattern for. That's basically just big enough to fit one... Um, center pole ball of yarn and uh, your project that's the size of socks mm. uh, and nothing else. Yeah. Um, so what I'm looking at is a, a black fabric cylinder with uh, red correct me if this is the wrong terminology red uh, hemming and zippers and then it has loops on either side through which it looks like that is a woven Yep, that is strap. another tablet woven strap. That's so cool. And you made the entire, I mean, obviously purchased the fabric, but you yes. you sewed it and you wove everything yourself and all that. Well, I, I purchased the fabric already woven. I purchased the zippers. Okay. I wove the strap and I came up with the pattern and I sewed everything together. And also I found a six inch ruler that ah, just like fits that's directly in. So I know that this is exactly six inches tall. Um, because that is the, I measure everything for my socks based off of, uh, size instead of like, instead of like however many stitches it takes to get like, or however many rows. So Mm. I know that like, after I place my afterthought heel, I need to knit until I've got five and a quarter inches and then I start decreasing for my toe. And I know that I need uh, the width of the sock to be between three and three and a quarter inches. So I need at least a six inch ruler so that I can get all of my measurements. So I'm like, I'm going to find a ruler that's exactly the size that I need. And I will be completely honest with you. uh, I assumed that the only part of that that you made by hand was the strap. And that's only because it didn't match the rest of it. Mm. That is a incredibly well made uh, bag. Thank you. All right. I think that that's all. That's it. All right. Thank you for filling in, uh, for Christine for this episode. And, um, as I said, Juliana will be, uh, joining the Foss and Crafts team to, uh, help with editing in the future. So we look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great joy and I'm glad that I got to ask a lot of these questions and I look forward to working with y'all more. Excellent. Thanks, and thank you to everyone out there listening. Thanks for joining us.
Moss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christine Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christine Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts, at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community on hash fossandcrafts on irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash fossandcrafts. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. That was probably a deeper dive than I needed to go. <laughs> no, I think the deep dive is good. Um, I can't help but think of the XKCD comic where the two experts are discussing, I don't know, geog- uh, not geography, geology or something. And they're talking about, you know, as experts, we often forget that lay people aren't as familiar with our field. They might only be familiar with very expert information. And so, like, as someone who, you know, I want to learn more fiber arts, but I don't really know much about it, um, I, I found it elucidating to hear the details and the explanations of why various factors matter. So I think it's good. Well, I'm glad. Uh, this is a, this is a topic that I could get on a very long tangent about, but yes. I think you recorded two episodes about it. I did, and I wrote like a book. Yeah, and you literally wrote a book about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Any closing remarks that you would like to make? Uh, I don't know. I feel like closing on bodies are weird is kind of a weird place to end. It is kind of a weird place to end.